Okay, so today I'm going to look at a little excerpt from on the genealogy of morals, Friedrich Nietzsche. It's a kind of a classic bit here, the, the section that he goes over resentment. You can find this, uh, it's pretty prevalent in a lot of people actually talking about today's day and age, and you'll see why. Uh, I was interested because, because I've seen it in a lot of different places. And I've kind of thought, and I've heard other people talk about this sort of being an age of revenge, the sort of feeling of the time is one of a certain bitterness and attempt at vengeance that people are always looking to dunk on another person. They're always trying to attack. They're always trying to do these things. Um, and they're trying to deconstruct history in such a way as to tear down the idols of their culture uh, when what seems like an act of bitterness that yeah. lacks a perspective, certainly a cosmic perspective, but just simple cultural evolutionary perspective or historical perspective uh, and seems very much to be fueled not by reason, though there are rationalizations for their behavior, but resentment. Okay, so a little context. Uh, when we begin this, Nietzsche is actually writing this book, criticizing Christianity. This is part of uh, his barrage against uh, that belief system. And he starts to come up with this idea of a slave morality versus a master morality. Uh, and he defines a slave morality as being sort of in opposition to the master morality. Okay, so to begin. The slave revolt begin the slave revolt in morals begins with resentment. Itself becomes creative and ordains values. The resentment of creatures to whom the real reaction, that of the deed, is denied and who find compensation in an imaginary revenge. While all noble morality grows from a triumphant affirmation of itself, slave morality from the outset says no to an outside, to an other, to a non-self. And this now is its creative act. The reversal of the evaluating gaze, this necessary orientation outwards rather than inwards to the self, belongs characteristically to resentment. Moving on a little bit, he says of the noble or master morality, they do not have to construe their good fortune artificially through a glance at their enemies to persuade themselves of it, to convince themselves through lying, as all men of resentment usually do. Likewise, a fully developed people overladen with strength and consequently as necessarily active people, they are better than they knew better than to separate action from happiness. With them, activity is necessarily calculated into happiness. All this is diametrically opposed to happiness, as understood on the level of powerless, the oppressed, of those who superate with poisonous and hostile feelings, those for whom happiness appears essentially as narcotic, an aesthetic, calm, peace, Sabbath, the expansion of feeling and the stretching of limbs. In a Word as passivity. Okay, 
So you can kind of hear what he's getting at there. It's that the first thing that I thought was really interesting about this is that he's contrasting them. And he's kind of noting that when that people who are resentful are pushing their problems in some sense outward. Yeah. That they're not interested in action. They're not interested in making things happen. He like, like he talks about passivity, that they're passive. And it's like in their passivity, they have to, how would you say? They almost have to see the active person as immoral. That they blame that person. They look outward. They seem to invert things. It's kind of complicated. Yeah. It's like an internal versus external, like or intrinsic versus extrinsic, and how you how you look at reward systems. Right. And they don't. It's yeah. Convince themselves to lie. Let's see. Let me move on a little bit more. See if it comes more clearly to me. Uh, this then is the very opposite of what the nobleman does. For the latter conceives the fundamental concept good spontaneously and in advance. That is from his own point of view. And only then does he proceed to create for himself an idea bad. This bad of noble origin and that evil which which issues from the cauldron, cauldron of insatiable hatred, the former being a retrospective creation, an incidental, a complementary color, where the latter is the original, the beginning, the real deed in the conception of the slave morality. What a difference there is between those two words, bad and evil, in spite of the fact that they both appear to stand in opposition to one and the same of good, concept of good, but is not the same concept of good, which is involved in each case. The question which should be asked is rather who is actually evil according to the morality of resentment. In all strictness, the answer is none other than the good man of the other morality. None other than the noble, powerful, dominating man, but only once he has been given a new color interpretation aspect by the poisonous eye of resentment. Interesting. So there we go. That makes more sense to me. So it's, it's that, it's that those that are resentful look at the good man and blame him, <clears throat> blame him for their lack of happiness and then define what they call good as the inverse of the morality of the the noble person yeah because they look at them and say well why don't i have that yeah it's and it's not it's not it's not even just it's not just like maybe it's, they say i did like i don't have that I wish there's like an implicit admission that they wish to be like that person. Right. It's it's like an admiration, but they, but it becomes twisted in the sense that the, the admiration, it's almost like what he he's implying by using slave morality. It's like a, they will always feel inferior to this good person, whatever you whatever the society sets upon. And so they, all they can do is say, well, I'm never going to be that good. So I'll just hate that person. Yeah. 
and like hate even the idea. And it's it's like it yeah. just is evil. Like you see this inversion when people are talking about. Um, I mean, obviously not always, but you talking about body positivity. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's nothing wrong with ex- having a realistic expectation of how you look and how you're going to look. If you're an endomorph and you're just built wide like that, that to some degree, that's just how you are. You shouldn't be envious yeah. of somebody in a different position, right? Um, and, uh, and vice versa. If you're an ectomorph, maybe you have a hard time putting on muscle if you want to. You should you should take that as it is, right? That there's a healthy version of this, but the unhealthy version is something like uh, looking at the person who is athletic and capable, and is a a supermodel or is in you know on Sports Illustrated or something, saying, "I don't have that. I hate that I don't have that. I hate the idea that that is." desirable right that that right. that we are meant to even admire something like that at all and then you're out because you resent like a bodybuilding competition or something like that yeah and the very idea and so they they flip it and they out what they do is they elevate they elevate the opposite to the the highest order they say that um they put someone who's obese on the co- this recently happened on the cover of sports illustrated and then they 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 say that that's a healthy body image that that's to and then to disagree with it is an evil and that you're body shaming, right? And then they say that the athletic former ideal is an unrealistic body standard. Hmm. So they like an inversion of the moral compass, right? And it's because they resent the fact that that thing is admired is okay, is good. It's so and, crazy. Because <laughs> it's everywhere. It's everywhere right now. If yeah. you work hard enough for it. Right. Everywhere. It's the same thing with finding all the characters in history in the Western world, all the heroes of the West, finding the most obscure things that they said, Right, right. Things are going to be taken out of context, either in the writing or even the historical context and the simple recognition that things that people did in the past were more barbaric than we are now, in part because it's a process and we couldn't just emerge right now with <laughs> moral understanding that we have. We had to go through being shittier to become Continuum. better. <laughs> right. But they won't take that. They'll take it out of perspective out of its context and then use that to tear down what was good out of a hatred for what was considered good. Hmm. It's like, and he gets into this, I think more. It doesn't feel like that's a very productive stance. Like the quote that's coming to mind as as you're talking about this is uh, actually a Theodore Roosevelt quote. I actually didn't know it was him, but it's the comparison is the thief of joy. And it's like, like there's a certain amount of comparison that we all do, right? Like that's what leaderboards are. That's what any sort of competition is, right? You have to, I mean, we're also social creatures, so we can't help but compare ourselves to others in whatever realms we're in, right? But there's a limit that we have to set that, a lot of the things that we're in, and this is kind of an old school idea, but we used, we used to see things more as like zero-sum games. 
Whereas if you have a bigger slice of the pie, then everyone else loses a portion of it, which is still true in certain circumstances. But in most of like the average person's life, there's a lot more, you know, there's so much more room for everybody to win, regardless of who you are. And so you don't need to just think that like, oh, because they have, you know, a nicer car or they have whatever it is that you elevate. It doesn't need to turn in this to a resentment thing. Um, you know, it, 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 at least that's the way I kind of interpret this. Yeah, I think you're right. And you're right to say that they think that uh, the, 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 they're, you're right to say the comparison is the thief of joy, right? And the opposite of that would be something like high, high tides raise all ships, right? Yeah. Where you recognize that the success of another person, even if it's indirect, can help you. Yeah. It isn't this combative us versus them mentality where their success infuriates you. Or it means you won't be as successful as they are. Because a lot of the times, the people you compare yourself to are the people you are trying to emulate in some respect. Yeah. And so by the very fact that they're popular or have achieved something that you have come to resent means there's something about that that you you want. And it may not be clear to you as to what exactly about it. Because, you know, it's like your emotion is hidden from you to some degree, right? Like the... It's another parable, but it's like you can see the the splinter in someone else's eye, but not the log in your own. Yeah. And, and it, it at least strikes me like that kind of um, parable because in many respects, the reason you resent someone is because they remind you too much like yourself. It's yeah, it's it's like it isn't just that there's something like you, right? Because there are plenty of people who can be just like you who you don't resent that's true it could be people who are equally as of course it can get so bad that you're all just so equally miserable that you all just hate each other but you all pretend <laughs> to be friends right yeah that happens there are people that are in just toxic groups of people that all they do is complain Drag each other down right and one person starts to succeed and then they rip at that person make snide remarks whatever it happens to be you can certainly get there but it's like honor cultures. At least that's what I remember from like the, at least I haven't read in a long time, but hillbilly elegy. It's like those ideas of when people try to leave like gang places or places where there's like that, that really tight knit group of people where you have a very specific way of life. As soon as one person tries to ostracize themselves and, and go toward a more either mainstream or just, you know, flip a 180 out of that culture, all of a sudden it's like they start dogpiling on that person. And it's like a gravitational pull to keep, people from leaving those hmm. cultures and it reminds it's it's something like theory of there's a bit of theory of mind going on in here okay so theory of mind just for listeners is a psychological concept it's not uh, a theory about minds it's my theory about your mind and so i have a model in my head of what is your desires beliefs and goals right mm -hmm. and it's like one of the ways that we start to expand our understanding as human beings of other people is that we become conscious. We become conscious of ourselves. We have an awareness of ourselves. We have a model of our own mind, of our own being. You can have a sense of identity in this way, explicit sense of identity. I am 
uh, a student. I am whatever, a lawyer or whatever it happens to be, right? Uh, and what tells you something about what you are is what someone who fits a similar category reflects back to you, right? So I'm a human being. I see other human beings acting a certain way. That tells me something about what I have the potential to be, right? Gotcha. And you can see this in positive ways where that's a role model is someone like you're saying with admiration, you see yourself in them, that they're they're not so far away from you that you can't, you'd like, I don't even know what that person's about. That's something like what genius is. Genius is on the positive end. Jesus, genius is, uh, I don't understand how you did that positively veiled. Right. I don't know how you got there. That's crazy. You're a genius. And then it's opposite. The negatively veiled is the same thing. I don't understand how you did that. You're crazy. That's the <laughs> negative version. Right? It's yeah. why genius and insanity are two sides of the same coin. It's just, it's the same thing. I don't understand how you got there. I can't comprehend how you are the way that you are, how you manage right. that. Either good or bad. And that's why there's always a lag time for those people who push culture forward hmm. because it's so far outside of the paradigm. Right. Right. Either, yes. either it's a lag, the, the lag time is because people have to sit with it and unpack it or breaks, other breakthroughs need to, you know, get those stepping stones that are between the genius's theory and the outcome. Right. And, oh, and basically by definition, that person who's pushing the paradigm forward has to be in a sense, incomprehensible. Right. Because if you could comprehend it already, then it wouldn't be novel. It wouldn't be pushing right. things forward. It would just be what already is. Right. So obviously there's a, there's a line here where to speak, it does flip into crazy where it's incomprehensible in a bad way. Right. Where that, because it never, it, that it never makes sense. Right. It never made any sense. And you have, <laughs> pick apart who the charlatans are from who the real geniuses are uh, with time because you're not sure who's who until you spend enough time considering how it is that they're thinking and what it is that they're thinking about. But all of this is to say that you're right to say that there's a certain amount of admiration that it's reactive admiration to a certain character, who you see yourself in, who you see yourself potentially becoming. And your similarity with them is what allows that. But if you're in this hillbilly elegy, I haven't actually read it, but like these, these, these places where you're caught in this toxic group of friends, this toxic culture, then if they watch you, who they think is like them, begin to transcend their negative situation, that suggests to them that they could transcend their situation. And immediately the person admired becomes a representative of judgment. Why aren't you doing better? Do better. Yeah. Just by the example, just by setting the example, the person admired in some sense becomes someone who crushes, condemns, yeah. and they can't handle the condemnation. So instead of, instead of saying, wow, that hurts, being inspired or allowing themselves to accept the fact that that hurts, right? Recognizing the sincere emotion 
ow, that hurts. And recognizing it hurts because I believe I can do better. Right? Not, they may or may not be thinking anything about you. It's what's happening in your head, right? I'm thinking that they think that I could do better, but that all that cares is <laughs> I'm thinking I can do better because <laughs> right. I can't read the mind. You're just using what your projection of what they're thinking is a surrogate. <laughs> right. To attack the feeling, repress the feeling of yeah. being condemned even by yourself, you invert everything. What they're doing is bad. They make me feel bad. What they're doing is bad. Right. And now you're resentful. And now Nietzsche picks it up from there. like woof yeah it, it's again it's like i've heard this before but it's like whenever you whenever someone lashes out it says a lot more about their internal strife or whatever is going on inside of them than it says about you right and you can that doesn't mean that there aren't people who are judgmental right and condemning and shitty and whatever but the it does, that does not have to affect you. Right. That you can sit in that moment with equanimity and just be settled. And they can try to stir you up, but that is not about you. <laughs> That's about them. <laughs> and they might be becoming resentful about you and you're witnessing <laughs> the lashing out in this way. They might see, it might be, you could, I could imagine stories where, where the person who escapes that world looks back at it and becomes judgmental of the people that they left because they are embarrassed by the fact that they had ever been there. And in some way they're so, they were so adamantly trying to flee this version of themselves that they hated that to remember their roots is a painful experience mm. i've definitely seen people like that before and that's something like the inversion of what nietzsche is talking about because it's not resentment right you can it's not the same thing as resentment because no. that, that inversion thing but there's a similar like dynamic going on there. It's almost like feeling bad for where you came from, even though you've left. It's a, it's like a shame. Yeah, it feel, yeah. It's like when resentment turns to shame because it's like, well, it's like a, it's like mourning, but not like, but you're putting that like mourning, like that sadness, onto yourself, and you're feeling like people are going to look at you differently for having lived that way. Hmm. It's like when you see people who've like lived in like poverty and then get out of poverty, they like, it almost like it lingers on them. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like they, yeah. Right. Like, like the people who, who got, went through like the great depression and how they, they can't shake some behaviors. Yeah. And it's, and like, that might be, like learned something like they've adapted to the scarcity of things. Yeah. And it, it becomes maladaptive to some degree when 
this situation has changed when the environment has shifted beneath them into a more positive way, suddenly they're, uh, they're kind of hoarding whatever it might be, it becomes a negative. You know, you're going to sit here and you're going to eat everything that's on your plate. I don't care if you're still <laughs> hungry or not hungry. Right. Right. It's like necessary. It's like we're not in a time of scarcity. Right. You haven't anymore. updated your worldview to match current circumstance. Right. And especially if it could create in a child the a bad relationship with food. <laughs> yeah. You could really imagine that happening. Oh, but and, it's, and there you go. Resentment again, all over again. <laughs> and you, Yeah. And you could any number of things, right? But it's it, the thing that I think unites these two different sides of this coin. So it's something like resentment that Nietzsche's talking about, which is the witnessing of an, someone you admire implicitly, someone, someone out there reminding you that you're being condemned and then in the reactive hatred and the inversion and everything that comes from that. Yeah. Right? But that comes from, it's like a looking outside yourself in order to define what's right and what's wrong. It's not you, it's not recognizing in and of yourself what you feel to be right and wrong, right? And in this, and in a similar way, you have the person of shame who's fleeing their shame, looking at something they don't like that they feel associated with, and then defining what's good in opposition to that thing. Good is anywhere but here. And it's not that I think I would prefer that, <laughs> that I would prefer <laughs> was that it's probably more productive, right? It's certainly more productive, um, but I don't think it. It's the end state. Right, so maybe it's like re transcending resentment into a trend into shame. And that's so bad, but it's an improvement because at least you're getting out of bad conditions. You're hopefully improving your life, doing whatever. But the version of that that goes even further is where you're no longer defining what's good or bad at all by the circumstances where you came from. It's still external. You see, it's still like outside of yourself. The, both of these look to me like a offloading of your conscience onto something in the world, to circumstances beyond you. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so the optimal version would be just listening to yourself just that in it's like a mindfulness that you're noting the passing feelings and not having to attack them or flee from them but let them be and that that's okay that they're there you there's just a feeling it doesn't mean right. you have to be possessed by that feeling and that it's almost like the enlightened person just they make a different choice about what to listen to. Right. It's like, it's almost like you're, you're, you're captivated so much that you can't help, but keep looking. You, you said this over the weekend, but it's right. like from Lord of the Rings when Pippin grabs the Palantir and he, and he can't stop looking or interacting with, with the Palantir and he's horrified by it. It, it strikes me as that, that analogy where when someone is so bought into the resentment, they can't 
put it away. You know, it's like a toy or, or a blanket that is like, in a weird way, it's like comforting for that person who's in that mindset. <laughs> because then they don't have to take, you know, personal agency over decisions in their life. Because then they can just point the finger and say, well, it's because of that. <laughs> this is why I'm not happy. Or this is why I can't achieve the things that I, that I want to achieve in my life. <laughs> you, you just get to shut the door and say, I don't even need to try. Game over. Hmm. Yeah. Like there's um there's a the kind there's a kind of narrative. Yeah, like you know? it almost builds a narrative for it. Like I can see this person who like makes makes this for themselves, right? Or like chooses to to step into that path. And in some ways it kind of branches like the, the resentful person is almost like at odds with the stoic person, right? Because in a in a like it in an engineering way, it, like stoicism as a philosophy is how to become less negative reactive, right? Mm. And and so the, the idea, and it's that's almost like what meditation does in, in an interesting way, but it's like somehow stoicism is like the closest to an Eastern philosophy as we've ever gotten. Um, that's a separate conversation. <laughs> but that, that's what I kind of see this aspect of, right? Is like being able to look at that thing that might get like, and it's not to say that you just, are like, I'm impervious to any negative thing, right? That's not true at all, right? You'll step your toe and you're going to start screaming or get cut off in traffic. You might get annoyed, right? But it's the, it's almost like that, and this is a Victor Frankl thing, but it's the, how to create the space between the stimulus and the response. And where most people, especially with how fast things come at us in, in social media world and everything like that, Stimulus and response are literally like on top of each other. You know, if you imagine like a Venn diagram, the the overlap is crazy. And we don't have any good way of teaching ourselves how to chill out and be like, I don't need to respond to this right now. You know? Yeah. yeah I've, I've heard this in um, talking about anger management. Okay. That they'll they'll talk about how that exact thing creating more that you don't have to react and trying to create more time between stimulus and response, and then much of anger management isn't actually trying to decrease the anger; it's trying to wait. Yeah, and wait it out. There, just you don't have to. It you know I I don't think I've ever gotten to a place where I've been able to sustain that kind of like general peace for very long. But when it does happen, it's it very much is a feeling like, oh, I don't have to do anything. Yeah. I don't have to say anything. If I want, I could just I could just start spinning around in circles. I could do any number of silly things. There's no real rules and there's nothing actually stopping me from doing these things. Yeah. I mean, I will anticipate the reactions of people and what their opinions would be if I did something like that. But that isn't so strong a law that I have to regard it anytime. And so if I'm sitting in a conversation and it's kind of dull or maybe I, or I'm nervous about being able to communicate with these people that I maybe don't know. It's nice to recognize 
that I don't actually have to do anything. Right. I'm not under any real obligation. That, but if I want to, if I want to say something, then I can do it. And in that way, it's like all of the expectations, all this fade away and the just trying to get, just trying to say something, got to fill the silence. This fades. And instead you can listen. You can just listen and watch. And, and then there's a, this, it's like you sincerely anticipate yeah. what the person is saying. Not not a jump, not listening in just long enough in order to conjure up a response, right? Not listening for the sake of my response, but listening and then the response is an organic byproduct of that process. Yeah. It's an exercise in being present rather than listening until you've heard enough to be able to get to your next talking point, right? <laughs> yeah. Because that's how so many people operate. Yeah, I think it is. I think that it's how so many people operate. I understand why. No, it's it's a very strange moment we're in. I, it's like it's very we're so economical to be in that mode, right? Like we have so many loops that we're just on, right? And you're just in, in your own loop. And mm. it's, it's because like our brain is, we're trained to respond to the patterns we're comfortable with. Right. And so if you just are incentivizing for those patterns, you're most comfortable with, that's all you ever go to. <laughs> and you'll just wait until you, you hear those things. Like, Oh, you know, and then all those <laughs> anticipation of reward signals go along and then you're good. And then you're like, well, I've done, I've done what I'm good at <laughs> rather than truly listening to the other people. Huh, yeah. Like you're chasing, you're almost chasing a high. Yeah. It's like the little dopamine pleasure hit that you get every time you say something you think is smart. <laughs> right. <laughs> trying to go after that all the time. And it's like, to me, just thinking about this in the context of modern sensibilities, with resentment, right? I think resentment can be a way for our brains to have novelty all the time in a world where we're so much information out there. What's the easiest thing for our brains to latch onto? Something negative, something that we can resent no matter what. Because then you can go on any social media platform and find a reason to resent something. I think we're all guilty of this. That This makes sense to me. You can find... There's so much information out there that you can find a near infinite amount to back up anything that you want. Right. And so maybe you're, maybe you have just a little tinge of resentment. You're not quite there yet. Right. It's just, it's a feeling. It's whatever. You're just pissed off that day and you go online. And if you want, you can look for a bunch of things that will tell you why it is that you're really failing. Right, that you can use to justify the part of yourself that you're unhappy with, that you're embarrassed about, right? I'm only this way because of the patriarchy. I'm only this way because of, you know, power and oppression and these things. Right. <laughs> I am only this way because of my parents. 
because I had that teacher in junior high that was, that put me down in front of the class. Whatever it happens to be, you can find a excuse. Right. You can have a story to live by, right? <laughs> and it might be a good one. Like you might have a really good reason for being the way that you are. Now, just because you can come up with a story about the way that you are, a reason for the way that you are, doesn't mean that's actually the reason that you're that way. We often misinterpret our own behavior. It's part of what makes therapy useful, is that what therapy is in part, is having what you're saying reflected back to you from the therapist that highlights, in some sense, the things you're missing, things you're not right. considering. That, that oh, biased that. viewpoint on your own life, right? Because it's hard to extricate. Because you're the you're the focal point of your own story, right? You're living your own experience, so you can't be unbiased about it. <laughs> it's just the nature of it, right? <laughs> kind of too close to the yeah. situation, <laughs> and it's not that you can't get there. It's that. Especially if the reason that you're in a place you don't like is your own fault and it's something that then the thing that you did was bad, right? By your own, by the admission of your own conscience that it's bad. Yeah. Then that can be hard to admit. Yeah. Because man, sucks to be bad. <laughs> Nobody wants to have a negative view of themselves. That's understandable. Yeah. But if you're not, willing or courageous enough to see it, you're putting yourself in a position where of vulnerability, vulnerability to resentment. Yeah. It makes, it makes it even more apparent to me why it's so important to either have really close friendships or significant others, either spouses or, you know, doesn't have to be married, but typically long-term relationships that you can rely upon that are going to be honest with you because they become vehicles to see your own reflection, to kind of call you on your own bullshit, really, because mm -hmm. they can see things. It's like the Overton window as a concept, because there's things that you can see about yourself that others might not see, but there's also things that you show to other people that you're oblivious to. And being mm -hmm. able to, if, if they're honest friends, they're going to be like, hey, man, you do this thing, you know, maybe it's it, just, just an example that came up right off the top of my head, but like, hey man, you drink a little too much, you know, I'm a little worried about you. And it's like, oh, well, I, I only drink, you know, a couple times, blah, blah, you know, and you, you, you make excuses for yourself yeah, <laughs> and you hand wave it away. Like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And then he's like, all right, I won't push it. And then you, you know, over time they get to see it more and more. And then it's like, hey man. And it's up to the person, right? Like there's only so far that a friend can go or a spouse can go, but there's still, it's like, they're still there. And it's important to have the, the multiple perspectives on these things. Hmm. Otherwise, yeah. Trapped. And you can be right. That's, that's, and you can, right. You can be trapped in your own rationalizations. That's the, oh, it's fine. It's all. I'm not drinking too much. What are you talking about? Oh, it's just a weekend or, you know, well, you know, it's this thing. And, oh, and you always have it. <laughs> yeah, I had a tough week or I lost my whatever. <laughs> right, right. Oh, today was just a hard day at work. And, <laughs> and then day after day, oh, it turned out every day at work is hard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, that can be, and it's in weird ways too. It's like, you can see self-deprecating stuff. Yes. That people will say, and just, it's like, what do you, stop. Like a good friend would be like, stop it. Right. It's like, don't get into a practice of hating yourself. Even self, I feel like self-deprecation is like one of the most insidious things because it's easy to do it, right? Because it's like, oh, I'm just making jokes, like underhanded jokes about myself. They're not that bad, but it's like, like you say that, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times or more, right? Like through a lifetime. Yeah. And it can be, (laughs) a self-deprecating joke can be disarming and charming and uh, in good humor and light. It's not... It's not actually self-deprecating. It's just right. a silly, it's an acknowledgement of something silly that you do, right? It, it isn't judgmental it is, in a bad way. It isn't this beating yourself down, but there's a type that just is hitting themselves all the time. Yeah. And it's like, stop. It's like a, it's like a verbal lashing. <laughs> like they're, 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 it's like a subtle thing, but you can, you could tell when it's not just like, oh, I'm being silly because like. It's like the when people give acceptance speeches or something and they say something like, oh, I'm really not that good. Right? Like, whatever. But that's different than, like, you're around a group of friends and you say those things that's a little bit more biting than necessary it needs to be. Yeah. And especially if it kind of feels that a lot of context or, like, like it, it's almost like they weren't quite listening to the conversation, the natural flow of the conversation. And then yeah. they'll kind of say something sharp about themselves and you go, where did that come from? Yes. It's like, well, it came from that were thinking about that about themselves and it slipped out <laughs> and they <laughs> cloak it in humor they cloak it in humor to make it not so obvious <laughs> so they don't have to see that that's what they think about themselves that you don't have to really see it but and you can and people will do this in other ways you have seen people who have given hints about like um self-harm i've seen that before mm. uh which is tragic i've seen this is a rule with dating that i have that if a woman that i meet goes ha 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 i'm crazy i take their word for it <laughs> <I> go, okay <laughs> noted right it, it, there's a certain thing that's like oh you couldn't handle me and i'm like i don't think i want to you're like i don't think i want to find out <laughs> problem is some people like a handful (laughs) yeah they like a handful for a bunch of reasons i mean some of it is that they think that the positive end is that i forget what book it was is that i'll remember later but or maybe i won't uh you only accept the love you think you deserve i think that's Mm. the quote gosh i can just look this up we're having a It, it reminds me of, um, I forget who, this might have been in one of Peterson's books, but he talked about this in like relationships um, with some of his patients he's had, where people tend to have, like they end up going, having a string of very similar relationships that almost all fail the same way, mm. because they haven't reconciled like that initial relationship. Yeah. And Okay. And so- go ahead. Sorry, the you talking about the way in which people can be trapped in a loop. Yes. Right. We only accept the love we think we deserve. It's from Perks of Being a Wallflower. Okay. And so, yes, um, I think that 
that's it's a multi that phenomenon you're talking about where they date really the same person 15 different times right that's not just that it's who they think they deserve that's a part of it i think that's not deep enough i think that what's going on there is they had some initial so this is coming out of attachment theory mm. this is the idea that when in that infants uh gravitate towards and rely upon an attachment figure to, for survival. But that attachment figure is their first introduction to the nature of relationships. So it's okay. the foundation of their further models, right? And so your attachment style as an infant will predict over um, log, they've done longitudinal studies, your attachment style as an adult. So you'll maintain that attachment style. So that can, that can happen in a couple of different ways. It can be a secure one where the infant is, uh, when distressed, comfortable approaching the mother, the mother's good at attending to this, uh, making sure the child is you know, right then and there, recognized, non-neglected. But you can have anxious versions of this where the child is not really sure if they can depend on the mom. Right? So they can be devoidant, like I'm going to be sad on my own because I can't depend on you. You can have a clingy child that never wants to leave. Um, that's uh, the anxious attachment style. And this goes on to adulthood. So you can have people in adult relationships who are using the first relationship they ever had as a general model for all relationships. Now that can become pathological, right? And that there's a place where, where a failed previous relationship that went terribly bad uh, can leave someone in a state of something like trauma, and they haven't picked apart the trauma yet. They haven't like gone into it, understood it as what it was, witnessed it, experienced the emotion again. Often when people relive these experiences, they say relive because their brain activates in the same way as it would during the trauma. They have a f influx of emotion. Freud talked about this with um, hysterics that they had to experience the whole thing again with everything all at once. And then it would finally subside, they could finally get past it. And hmm. This has been reinforced by Edna Foa. It is like psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> and Edna Foa talks, she did uh, clinical research on PTSD and Edna, usually right? rape. E-D, Edna, N-A? Yes. Okay. It, it sounded like you said Ed at first, so I just wanted to clarify. Yeah. <laughs> Edna <laughs> Foa. Okay. Uh, has done, look at this, but it's all, it's all saying the same thing. You have to go into it, look at it make sense of the thing, experience the emotion and all of it. And then eventually you'll pull out a, something like a life lesson. You'll have learned where you took a wrong turn, where, what the assumption about this person was, why you held that assumption, whatever it may be, you'll learn what it is where you went wrong. And that tells you how not to do this again. That's really interesting. Right?
So that's the positive come full circle. You've, you've escaped the underworld with the treasure or what have you. Right. But if you fail to do that, so you, you don't listen to the trauma, you don't acknowledge it. It's something like repression. You have the memory. It's there. That's where Freud was wrong. He thought you went like, you just lost it. Like you just didn't know. It just poofs and goes away. <laughs> right. Which was a real problem because then a bunch of people that came after Freud and I don't know if Freud did it himself, um, started basically implanting false memories in people because they would see somebody who was traumatized and then assume that it was childhood sexual assault and that they had just forgotten that that was the case, that they had repressed it and gone, like just blinked out. And so they would start be, like goading that, oh, well, did your uncle ever do anything? And then this would progress into you've created a false narrative around what the nature of the trauma was. Right. That was not good. It's like leading the witness. <laughs> Right. It's exactly like leading the witness, but it's someone who's vulnerable and traumatized. Right. Of course, that might also be leading the witness in that. Um, that being said, they haven't dealt with it. They haven't gone in through the memory and learned everything. So they don't know how to avoid it again. But there's an unconscious, you have to make the, what was unconscious feeling and all this conscious. Yeah. That's the integrating of these things. If you don't do that, what happens is that your unconscious systems that have not repressed this experience because <laughs> will continue to deal with it in the only way that they can. Yeah. Right. And that's because, and that's because the unconscious systems are unconscious. You, they are, you have no control over them. That's the point, right? These are automated systems that take in stimuli and try to output a response, right? And so if you are not letting the process go the way that it's organically supposed to go, then it just keeps trying to figure out how to solve the problem without you, right? And one of the ways that that can be is by acting out the situation again in order to map it, to get you to rewalk the path you walked to see where the wrong turn was, where the trip ball was, so you don't have to make that happen again, but you're acting it out now instead of sitting down and experiencing and thinking it through. So now you compound the trauma by going back to this place, not knowing where the pitfall is and increasing the likelihood that you'll fall right back into it. Interesting. Time and time again. So that's what that's, that's, that is, is it somebody who has a potentially a bad relationship in the past who is trying to unconsciously solve the problem of that bad past relationship yep. and does it by acting it out, which is an unconscious automated system that they have no control of. And this is like a perfect example for the whole reason this conversation, the whole theme of this conversation with resentment. It strikes me the same, it's the same antidote for resentment is the same thing that happens here. Because most people end up resenting the that bad relationship, right? And it's like, the reason they resent it so much and they're stuck in the loop of, of resenting it, right. Of hating it. And they can't get out of it is, and they become a broken record is because they haven't diagnosed the why and not just like one why, but like the deepest why. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> that is exactly right. Like, and you can see it too, because I've seen this with, um, with some young women that I've come across that they had their first relationship was very bad and it ended in a way that they don't understand 
and it sent them into a spiral. Mm -hmm. Okay. So maybe the guy was an asshole. Maybe they were naive, maybe both, maybe, maybe any number of things, right? But in the same way that their attachment model is built up, right? So from your first attachment, your, your parent, right? And then informed, right? It evolves by its interaction, its use on another individual. So you're young, you've never had a relationship. The only serious relationship you've had with the opposite sex was a parental one. This is just on Freudian because it is. But you approach that, I mean, not quite because Freud wasn't exactly right on the details. You don't, it's not that they, you approach that person with what you have, what understanding you have, what you know, which is your parent model. You use that to interact with that person. Uh, and over time, what happens is that your model that you would expect to have a certain output no longer has the same output. So the fact that your expectations aren't being met in this circumstance suggests that the person you're interacting with isn't the same person as what the model was. Yeah. So, right. The simple fact that it isn't working anymore immediately indicates that there's two different things. Hmm. Okay. So now it differentiates. So now, boop, now you have a branch on that tree, okay. right? You have parent model and you have whatever this new thing model is, but it can be so malformed, right? So basic and that at an early level, if you get traumatized there, then the category isn't in these circumstances, father and boyfriend, it's man. Right, just categorically. <laughs> it's just all men are the same. All It's just they all belong to the category. You, your model is not sufficiently differentiated to tell the difference between all these different individuals. It needs to be interacted with more. It needs to grow in the interaction. And more nuance. And experience. It needs a ton of experience, right? That's how it grows. It's really right? interesting. But if you've broken it at that level and you never went back to fix it, then you can easily see how somebody would just hate all men. Right. Because for them, there's no difference between all men. They don't, they haven't interacted with men enough to truly understand them in a serious way. And of course this happens with, on the flip side, men with women, right? They can just hate all women. Always, yeah. I mean, right. none of this is exclusive. It's <laughs> Right. And so what, you, what that suggests is that um, misandry and misogyny are infantile meaning that you have a infant-like model of men and women that has now been corrupted by some experience mm. and that you haven't differentiated. So you are infantile if you, have, if you feel that way. And that the way to fix that is to probably go to therapy, but to go into the experience and relive it again until you figured out where you went wrong and what was wrong and what the differences between these types of people were. And then you can begin to split it off right. and understand, oh, there's actually good men and bad. Or there's, and then when you get really sophisticated, you'll see that there are just people and that within those people is a series of different impulses and drives, some of which can be good under some circumstances and some, <laughs> even the same ones can be bad under different circumstances. Yeah. 
And that's when you get a really nuanced, sophisticated character. And that's how you really understand someone. Now, you don't understand most people at that depth until you've been with them in a in some kind of serious long-term relationship. Very long periods of time, typically. Right, either <laughs> friends like you or, you know, marriage or what have you. Yeah. It's like, it's like to me, I've always, I've thought about this like recently, you know, with me and you <laughs> slowly, like you're turning 30 and then me approaching 30, um, you know, like the, how does one make long relationships or long friendships, you know, whatever you want to call it with relationships, right? And it, it's like, you don't force it in some sense. It's like, there's no point where you're just like, well, we're going to be friends forever, right? Like, 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 there's no such thing as that. It's just like, you just take it one day at a time and then over, you know, months, days, weeks, whatever. And that like slow accumulation of experiences, it's not about like your viewpoint with another person and say, oh, we're friends because of X, Y, or Z reason. And maybe that's how it starts, right? Like we become friends because we like seeing sports games together, right? Whatever sport that you guys gravitate toward. But then over time, because there's enough downtime in the activity of doing that activity, deeper things emerge. And you don't get to those level without giving proper, proper time. Like there's no shortcuts to either good or bad relationships it's you just have to like it's almost like archaeology in some sense like you you forge these connections just over like happen chance and just in creating a narrative together as a either a group of people or as two people like interweaving their lives together in some sense hmm. yeah you're right <laughs> it, in your own story <laughs> archaeology point you are uncovering <laughs> each other right in I, the thing and that that's a dialogic process that there's a dialogue me and you are talking and over time you also learn in the interactions with other people wh where whether they're worthy of trust mm -hmm. whether you can be comfortable around them and in that comfort the, the it's like the guard settles and the sincerity can emerge, yep. but you have to sort of communicate that with that other person that this is okay. You're in a place where we can just relax. Yeah. I think, um, this just totally spiked another, um, thought. And I think we should do that, do it in a future podcast that we, we do. But John Verveke had talked about this with Lex Friedman, um, mm. And one of the things he sees as like a part of the meaning crisis for the younger generation, like ours, and then not so much ours, but a little bit ours, but also Gen Z, because he's done this kind of research with his students about meaningful relationships. And one of the things that he said is part of the problem is we've basically supplanted the significant other relationship as the thing that has the most meaning. Right, like the thing that used to be religion for most people has now become that significant other. So that person not only has to be the the like home base, but it also has to be the greatest virtue at the same time, which is like something that will fail a hundred percent of the time at some point, right? <laughs> because they're not God. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> and and that's kind of what it is striking to me is like we have to teach young people that you have to have a diverse group of friends because 
one person will not meet all your needs, no matter how good it is. Hmm. Yeah, they can't. They're human beings. Right. <laughs> They're limited. <laughs> yeah. And I, I totally see this. This like, it's this flattening of values. Yes. That like there used to be something very high to aim towards. Sort of umbrellaed and contained the significant other, and it didn't rob them of their importance. Their importance in a real sense, or, or but it put them in perspective. It put them in their proper place, and you understand that I'm not putting all my hopes and dreams on you. It's we're two people, and we can just be two people if. We have a better place to sort of project that value. Yes. That makes sense. And we could totally go. A bunch of people that have talked about this. Like, yeah, not just John Ravakey, but he was the most recent one that I've heard talk about that that specific part of it. There was um um Chantal Del Sol, a French philosopher, wrote a book called Icarus Fallen. Oh, yeah. Where she imagined where she manages where the, the Western world is at a the place where Icarus would have been had he survived the fall, right? He had gone for great heights, got too close to the sun, and then ascent crumbling to the ground, right? And he, he, he lives and he's there with smoldering ashes and the whole thing and is wondering, wow, where did that go so wrong? The place where the very belief in something aspirational rings of impending tragedy that to, she says that the values are aspirational things, right? They're not concrete goals. They're, they're not even something that you can accomplish in your lifetime. There's something to strive for. And the fact of striving for things, these things will improve your life, right? Even if you never get there. But we had such an optimistic modern view where we thought that we could do anything with the world at all and that like the world is our oyster we can manipulate it with impunity only for the mechanisms and these machines that we created in our hubris to turn on us and to mechanize people to make them into uh fodder for concentration camps mm. and that the same kind of we can do anything means we can do anything in that the manifest destiny taken too far right like once there was no more land to conquer we started looking at like how do we manifest the things we want in our lives from people and things that's like a a displacement yeah in some sense i mean obviously manifest destiny was a historical thing right and I, so they have detailed super proper but <laughs> right but like as a metaphor as yeah. a general like that, yeah, that there's, there's a, there's a displacement, but there's like a, a bunch of consequences that happen when you don't, when you get rid of the aspiration yeah. and the, it's like the reason we, that we got rid of the aspiration is because we don't trust the idea of aspiring to something at all anymore because of the horrors that we experienced in the 20th century. And so everybody thinks that all high values lead to slavery. Or lead to the Holocaust or the Gulag or something. It's like the atomic bomb. We anxiously anticipate 
the abysmal failure of everything that manifests itself as inspirational to us. Mm. It's like, wow, there's that beam of light. I can go there and then immediately go, oh yeah, but what if I get burned? And it's like, we're afraid. We're afraid because we don't know what took us there. We don't know why we went so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's a cautionary tale of World War II, right? And it's like, in some sense, we've kind of been afraid to to to, to go to that level again. Not to World War II, but to like turn on that machine of, you know, the American dream or whatever you want to call it with yeah. progress, you know. It's, it's the, the idyllic life. We're, as a civilization, acting traumatized. Hmm. It's the same pattern on a different level. Yeah. That the, that the traumatized person that hasn't gone and looked at their trauma and figured out where they went wrong conflates a bunch of things, leaving it un... Like the autopsy was never done. Yeah. It leaves it un... I don't know where I'm losing the word. Something. I mean, un-something. <laughs> and we're doing the same thing as a civilization. We don't know where we went wrong. So we think that the thing we went wrong with was hmm. aspiring. It's like resent, resenting the, the even progress at all or any positive yeah. or optimistic outlook at a societal level of like, well, we could go back to, right? Like part of the thing is like, you know, my background is an engineer. It's like, we got to the moon and then we said, okay, we're, we did it. We're done. We don't need to go back. We've, you know, been there, done that. Boring guys. <laughs> no need to go back. <laughs> right. And then we just let it go for 50 years, right? Until now we have people like Elon Musk who and, and Bezos who are trying to make these rockets and things like that. But it's like the government has abdicated the responsibility to be this force for aspirational goals. Yes. She talks about that. Oh, interesting. She, she literally says that she goes, because we lost aspirational goals. She doesn't use statesmen exactly, but it's a good word. We don't have real statesmen anymore because what a statesman did was actually govern that the point was to guide the ship in the direction to which we were aspiring. It was to yeah. like help the thing move forward. But because we don't have something to aspire to, all we have are problems. Hmm. We just have a whole bunch of problems. And because we have a whole bunch of problems, and all these things are so complicated, you end up offloading the responsibility that the what well, or politicians and what were statesmen had onto experts. Yeah. And so you just have a whole bunch of experts that are talking about things. COVID is such a great example. We had Fauci and these characters come up to be the authoritative voice as if they would know what to actually do because they wouldn't because being a statesman and being an expert are not the same thing and that they're they're not politicians they don't know how to a good politician they don't know how to communicate well with the population how to rally everyone how to get us to understand what's happening and to say to be a point of strength in a difficult time. Yeah. They don't know how to do that. So you can just have, you have calculated lies that you got from Fauci in particular about saying like mass do or do not work. 
And and I think by his own admission, he was calculating like, will these people actually listen? And, and we need to actually, it's like, oh, I don't think people will leave these masks be. Um, I think the idea was that they didn't have enough supply of masks to provide for frontline workers. So they didn't want to cause a panic and get a bunch of people to go and buy masks at frontline workers. Right. <laughs> so he made a calculated lie and said, no, masks don't do anything when he knew that was not true. Right. And immediately betrayed the trust of the population. And then when he had to say, oh, actually they do work. That was it. Nobody believed the word he said from that point on. It was, and you, and you, I think that he has uh, some amount of responsibility for the conspiracy theorists and the anti-vax people because yeah. his lie set everyone off and paranoid people. Well, we can't trust anyone. But all the, all this is just to say, right? This is just an example and you, people can bigger with me on the details. That's fine. Right. Just an example is that what a statesman would have done would have been honest and would have said, here's what we're aspiring to. This is a difficult time. We need to come together and understand that this is going to be hard. We're at one team. We don't have enough supply of masks to help the frontline workers. This is a big problem. If we lose them, then we'd start losing everybody. Right. We need you to be, you know, with the best of our knowledge at home, you know, quarantine or isolate, whatever it happens to be, and avoid buying masks for now so that if you have to go to the hospital, there will actually be someone there alive and healthy to help you. That's what a statesman says. But we didn't have those. We just had fixers. Just throw the fixers at these. Yeah. These problems. You need the people who can make it feel like everyone has a dog in the race, right? Like, and I think kind of zooming back out further, right? The, in the 90s, in the early 2000s, instead of the statesman, what came about? You got these rock star entrepreneur CEOs, you know? And they became the visionary, the luminary, the people that people aspire to be like, rather than they were the ones with the vision instead of the people at the, what would historically have been the government to, to be that beacon to which like, here's where we're headed, right? as a society, as a people, as a culture, as a whatever, right? Whatever you want to look at it. And because of that, it's like now with the proliferation of just social media categorically, we, we, there's any number of narratives to pick from and nobody can agree on the same thing. So that just is a breeding ground to resent somebody for some political view or whatever, right? <laughs> Rather than looking at it and being like, oh, well, we're all trying to head directionally in the same place instead you get this feel where it's like both sides are trying to just yank the rubber band it feels like a rubber band right and it's like you're pulling it further and further until you know <laughs> and it, it's even it, it's this is such a time for resentment because there's so much information out there that no one person can make sense out of all of it I mean, that's always been the case in reality is that re reality just is so complicated. Forget it. But we have so much access now yeah. to information that conflicts, information to spin it, that's compli <laughs> pure complicated, always at your fingertips. And we've, of course, our media has done a horrible job with this because normally they could 
just tell you the, the facts to some degree, try to be as objective as possible to provide for you some framework for making sense of this cacophony. But instead, that's not even happening. So it's even more confusing. It's not like people are trained scientists that can read half these papers. Right. And even if they were, it's so complicated that most scientists can't make sense of half of this stuff. So we're in this position where things aren't going well. No one knows why, because it's too complicated to figure out. And so reactively, what they can do is go look for evidence to blame someone. And so it's them, it's the libs, it's the, you know, conservatives, it's these rednecks, whatever. I don't Conspiracy don't theorists or the, version the woke people or the... <laughs> it's not that there aren't crazies who are adding to the problem. You'd have to be blind to think that. It's just that it becomes too easy to just hate the crazies on the other side and say that that's going to leave it there. When the, really, the onus is on you to improve the world around you, to have a, to focus, to get your eyes straight, to focus on where we should head and start rallying people in that direction. Don't, don't look to your side and attack over there. Right. Look forward. That's and the red hair. Everyone with you. At least... As you could start, <laughs> this is an analogy of a magnet, right? But as soon as you can polarize in the right direction, in a, in a good way, not a bad way, but like, you know, you get everyone lined up and say, we're going that way. <laughs> and once you start doing that, right? And then other people start looking like, wait a minute, it seems like they have a plan. And then people start, but it's, all, it's, and it's not to like being, there's a right way to do this is what I'm trying to say. It's like, you don't want to point the finger and say well it's their fault we're here and, and like do that kind of thing like that's like weaponizing resentment it's more of like acknowledging why we got here without blaming a specific thing and saying here's how we fix it not well it's x y or z's fault and you know fuck that guy let's go <laughs> let's let's go solve that problem real quick because that doesn't solve anything like it's short term solve something like you feel good because you've you know felt like you squashed something, but that doesn't fix the underlying issue. It's, it's addressing like the, the surface level thing, not the, the deeper symptom. Hmm. Yeah. And it only makes things worse. Yeah. Cause it just, it just makes retaliation possible. And then you're, and you're giving ammunition to the people who are pointing at you. Exactly. And then you, so you could talk about resentment, right? Like then you have one side resenting the other side and then you never, um, never escape it. It's like the idea from, there's a, I think it was in the 1800s. There was two families called the Hatfields and McCoys who just hated each other's guts from some historical strife for some reason. And it went on for like 50 years or something crazy, you know? And, and so that's what happens, right? Like that's, where we could we could end up and it's in some sense it feels like where we're at right now and in this crazy resentful world that we're in <laughs> and it's like we almost need to teach both sides how to put space between the stimulus and response so that we could stop 
the bickering for just two seconds <laughs> and we yeah. can actually look at it and be like, okay, we might not agree on a lot, or at least we might not think we agree on a lot. But I think if we try, we can get past it and we can put that aside and say, how do we actually make a meaningful change? I agree. And with that, I think we're good. <laughs> I have nothing more. <laughs> oh, we're really good. We just kind of hit a roll. That's good. See you later, everybody. I like, I like, um, do your closing. I like the way that these are, that these are going. That so far it's pick up some piece from a book and see where it takes us and move on. Yeah. It's neat. It's very fun. It's a uh, very, it feels like improv almost, <laughs> but yeah, very intellectual improv. <laughs> Yeah, it's still it's organic. I like yeah. it. Well, see you all next week, everybody.